in 1st Kings chapter number 8 this evening. 1st Kings chapter number 8. It's a blessing to hear our church family praying together, praying for one another. Trust that you had a good prayer time. 1st Kings 8. This study on the armor of God has expanded into a study on prayer, and I have been enjoying studying various prayers that are recorded in Scripture. And this is a lengthy prayer that we'll just really kind of scratch the surface of. But 1 Kings 8 and also 2 Chronicles 6 record Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. And this is an, an incredible prayer. And the occasion is really an, an awesome occasion. And if, if we were to go back and forth, we won't have the time tonight to spend a lot of time going back and forth. But Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, focus on the Davidic dynasty, the dynasty of David, whereas the books of First and Second Kings obviously record the kings of Israel and Judah. But First and Second Chronicles focus just on the Davidic dynasty. And so we have parallel accounts, almost identical, a little bit of variation from 1 Corinthians 8 to 2 Chronicles 6. And in 2 Chronicles, we see in chapter 3 the building of the temple. In chapter 4, the furnishings of the temple. In chapter 5, the bringing of the ark to the temple. And then in 2 Chronicles 6, the dedication and Solomon's prayer. And... We can go to 2 Chronicles 6 in just a few moments, but in 1 Kings chapter number 8, verse number 1, we read, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that cannot be told nor numbered for multitude. So they are now at the point where they're ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant and the furnishings of the tabernacle and bring them into the, the temple. Glorious temple. Solomon's temple. We don't have the time to go through and describe the in intricacies and the metals and all the beautiful ornaments of the temple. Millions and millions and millions of dollars by our currency, by our monetary system, easily in the millions of dollars that would have been spent on the temple. And obviously Solomon being the richest man in, in all the earth, and possibly ever from all time, he had a lot of wealth at his disposal and he poured it into the temple. 
And that should be a lesson in and of itself, the value that was given to the temple, the value that we see of the tabernacle and the temple worship in the Old Testament. Though we are not under the Mosaic law and we're not under temple worship in that system, that Mosaic system, I think the principle of the value of worship, corporate worship of God's people, of setting aside time to come together and the amount of sacrifice, the amount of dedication, the amount of money that was spent is a rebuke to us. When you think about how much time and money and energy we spend on lots of other things, and sometimes church and God's people become leftovers or become something that we just do out of duty or when we have time for it. And we see that that's not the way it was in the Old Testament. The worship of God, the temple, the tabernacle, the centrality of that and the honor that was given here. It's an incredible testimony and lesson for us. Now, we don't have, again, the time to go through all the details and the intricacies of the temple, but this picture does a little bit of justice, not a, not a lot of justice, but does a little bit to help us see the expanse of the temple and some of the glories of the temple. Again, we won't break down uh, all the details, but it took... Seven years of labor to build this temple. Seven years. And this is man with his hands, with what little bit of technology compared to today's modern technology where we have cranes and tractors and lots of different kinds of equipment. They would have done this primarily by hands, by hewing out the stones, by handcrafted uh, type of work, seven years of labor. And uh, sure, they had some, obviously, ways of lifting the rock and moving the stone, but not, again, with the kind of heavy equipment that we have. And it just goes, again, to show the dedication and the, the effort. Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came in, and the children of Israel, Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, were uh, taken into captivity, and Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Sadly, the... Uh, why is somebody calling me at this hour of the night? <laughs> but that's why I should have muted my phone. But here's Solomon's temple, and throughout the, the, the empires, remember Belshazzar? At the end of, the, uh, the end of his, his empire there, when the Medo-Persian Empire moved in, Remember, Belteshazzar was the one who the hand of the Lord wrote on the wall. What had he done? He had taken from the temple, he had taken the, 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 the cups, the vessels from the, the temple and had desecrated the temple for his drunken orgy that night, for that party, which was the end of the Babylonian Empire as the Medo-Persian Empire moved in. And uh, we see that the, the temple lost all of its glory throughout those empires. And then in uh, Zerubbabel's day, the temple was rebuilt and restored. And then Herod came along in the uh, centuries, or in the, the first century, in the, the time of Christ, in, in that era of history. Herod was an uh, egomaniac. He was a, a wicked man. And he liked to build things because that made him look good. 
he liked to, you know, some of us men, we like to have cars or we like to have guns or we like to have our, our different toys, our, our toys that we have as men around the house. He built things. That was his idea of toys. That was his way of getting fame and he would have different uh, buildings built. And for Herod, he wanted to appease the Jews and make the Jews like him. So he put money and time and effort into restoring the temple. Uh, and then eventually that temple was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans uh, conquered Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of background. We just read in 1 Kings 8, the moving of the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrifices and the, the, the pomp and circumstance in, in, a, in a reverential way. Not a, not a parade with a bunch of floats in an entertainment way. This isn't the Thanksgiving Day Macy's Parade. This isn't the Rose Bowl Parade. We're not, we're not looking for in giant inflatable Spongebobs and that kind of thing. This is not entertainment here. This is not pomp and circumstance for man to be glorified, for man and his achievements to be highlighted. This is a respectful, reverential taking of the ark and bringing it in procession, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and they bring the ark into the temple and put it in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies. And then we get to verse 23 of 1 Kings 8. And he said, well, let's go to 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. So he would have been out with his, he would have spread his arms out with his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep his covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou promisest him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, My sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And we'll stop there. And the the prayer goes on all the way uh, till uh, verse 61. And we, we, we read verse after verse after verse of this prayer. And we don't have time to read it in its entirety. We'll just break it down. But we see, first of all, in verses 23 and 24, how Solomon exalts God, as we just read there. And he, in his statement, he says, there's no God like the God of Israel. We see that adoration. We see that reverence. We see that fear of God. We see Solomon putting himself and all of Israel in a place of humility before God. We see him at the temple exalting God and declaring there is no other God like the God of Israel. And what, sadly, would Solomon eventually do? Sadly, Solomon would eventually become an idolater. He is praying this prayer, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but here is Solomon praying this great dedication prayer, and yet in just really a short amount of time, within his lifetime, he is worshiping false gods. 
But we have to respect and obviously appreciate, as we are reading here, the inspired word of God, the truth of this statement. The fact that they are even in this land. Jerusalem was conquered by David. This was not an easy place to conquer. Jerusalem was not an easy place to, to, to defeat those, those enemies of Israel that occupied that area. But God had delivered them from the Canaanites and all that idolatry. I know there were still vestiges of Canaanites. There were these different groups. There were the temptations that were still around, the high places, and some of these remnants of these Canaanites. But Solomon makes it very clear, the beginning of his prayer, that there is no God like our God. And we need to keep that before us as we deal with the news and the negativity and as our prayer life sometimes gets stale and gets stagnant, and we sometimes begin to wonder, is it worth getting on our knees? Does our prayer do any good? Is there any value in it? Well, if there's any value in prayer, which we know there is, but the greatest value of prayer is that it puts us in a place of humility before a holy God. That is the number one aspect of prayer that we have to keep before us. It's really not about all the asking and all the requests and all the getting. Those are wonderful things within the will of God. We are even told in the New Testament, if you ask not, you receive not. So we, we are to ask. We are to come with importunity, with a regular supplication and our requests being made known unto the Lord. But that always is first and foremost with a heart of humility, with a dependent spirit, with a acknowledgement that he is God and there is none like him and he is the almighty God. It would do us a lot of good to recognize that aspect of prayer and keep that before us first and foremost. And that's where Solomon begins. No, no. No God can compare to the God of Israel. And then we see him move into verses 25 through 30, and he does give a request. He does ask of God for his presence and for his protection. There are still enemies about. There are still the high places. There are still some Canaanites that have not been fully defeated. And there is going to be pressure. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be attacks. There's going to be the temptation to go the way of the Canaanites and to borrow from their gods and to borrow from their value system. And there are going to be even possibly physical attacks still upon Israel, though Solomon would experience a great measure of peace before he fell into sin and committed the adultery and the idolatry. And we read in verses 25 through 30, we read just verse 25 earlier, but verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built? He speaks to the imminence and the transcendence of God. Verse 28, yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today. And then he goes on and he speaks to the fact that they need God's protection and they need God's provision. And we need that, obviously, in today's world. We're, we're begging, we're pleading. In a time of high inflation, in a time of 
difficult economic circumstances. But more than just that, we need protection for our homes and our families. Yes, physical protection, but more importantly, spiritual protection. That we would see our children be walking and growing up in the, the, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord as we as parents or as we as grandparents and our influence with our, our children and grandchildren asking for God's protection and God's provision. I've reached a new stage in my life with one uh, child away from home and in college and uh, one just, I don't even like to think about it, less than a year away from being 18 and there's no magical pixie dust, pixie dust when you turn 18. It just means that you're a man in the legal sense of the word and you can go to jail, right? <laughs> so there's a big responsibility. But I have one that's less than a year from being 18 and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, ready, I'm not ready for that yet. Um, but Lord help me. But there's already that provision, that protection. And Every time my kids get in the car and drive away, I pray for God to protect them. I thank the Lord every time they come back in the driveway. I pray for Emily just about every time I, I, think, I think of her. I walk by her room, I pray for her, and, and that God will protect her while she's away from home. We can go on and on with the examples. Uh, you, you, you know what I'm, what I'm saying. But there's a spiritual protection that we need to be praying for for our homes. Prayer for the minds of our children to be protected in the ways of the Lord. That's why it's so important that we're faithful to church and that we're, that we're rubbing shoulders with godly men and women and people who, who interact in our life, to, uh, who, who give us uh, and bring to our lives uh, the grace of God and, 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 and the testimony and the example and the influence that uh, our children need and that we need as we uh, iron sharpen iron. And uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend and the, the other scriptures we could go to. But we see... King Solomon's prayer for God's presence and God's protection. And then he has seven, he references seven areas where God proclaimed a curse upon Israel in Deuteronomy 28. He talks about seven areas that where if Israel is disobedient, they would suffer curse. But if they would be obedient, they would experience blessing. And that's, I, just think, I just find it fascinating. What does Solomon do? He goes back to the Word of God. In his prayer, he goes to the Word of God. And it's good for us to pray the Word of God. It is good for us sometimes to go to a psalm and just pray through that psalm. I think of an evangelist friend of mine who said when he has difficult times, he thinks of his 150 friends that he has. The first 150 friends that come to his mind are Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, all the way through Psalm 150. I thought, what, what, what a great example. What a great lesson. We have 150 psalms that we can pray through. Now, Psalm 119 might take a little longer. We have to dedicate a little more time to that one. But it's a wonderful place when we don't have the words to say and we're struggling how many times do we find ourselves going back to the book of Psalms or just praying scripture? And we see Solomon doing that. He goes back to the word of God and he goes back to seven areas. He talks about defeat in battle where there had been sin in the camp. Where there had been droughts in the land and famine, of course, as well that accompanied that. National calamities. And I don't have time to even deal with 
the, 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 the corporate prayer that he prays for Israel. I don't, I don't have time to, to get into the nuances of that. But the, the point is that Solomon went back to the Word of God. He went back to God's promises and God's blessings. And he prayed those at that dedication prayer. And what an example, what a testimony to us of how we can go back to the Word of God and we can claim His promises in our prayers. And there are, there are, there are sins in our lives that need forgiveness. And one of the values of prayer, I've already mentioned the need for dependence upon the Lord, and that alone, that aspect of prayer alone being so important. But that dependence upon the Lord reveals the inadequacies and the failures and the shortcomings and the sins of our heart. And that means sometimes prayer is agonizing because there is conviction over sin and we have to confess that. Solomon's confessing, I know it's in a national way, but he's asking for God to bless the righteous, to punish the wicked, and for Israel to not be in that area of the wicked but to be in the area of the righteous. And forgive us, Lord, for where we have failed in these areas. And we have deserved these judgments. And then he prays for God's mercy, even for the foreigners who would join with Israel and fear Israel's God. And we've already seen examples of that. Solomon himself would know of Rahab, the example the Gideonites, as Joshua came in and was deceived, but the Gideonites were foreigners who came to God in faith. He prays for victory in battle. He prays for restoration. If they sin and go into captivity, Solomon prays prophetically. Solomon was not hoping for captivity, but he's saying if we fail so much, And for so long that we are taken into captivity, Lord, please deliver us. Please forgive us even then. And in a sense, did God not answer Solomon's prayer through Daniel and through the other prophets in the time of captivity and Nehemiah and Ezekiel? In a sense, those were prophets that were answers to Solomon's prayer. And eventually, God allowed Israel to come back to the land after captivity. And then we don't have time to go through the full chapter and look at these, these verses. But in verses 55 through 61, there is this commitment. At the closing of the prayer, the congregation stands. And with a loud voice, verse 56, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us. And then they make this commitment all the way down through verse 61. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. And then there is tremendous sacrifice, hundreds of sacrifices that are offered, 20 Two and twenty, twenty-two thousand oxen, one hundred and twenty thousand sheep. That's a lot of sacrifices. 
that again shows the consecration. In, in, in closing here, we're out of time, but in closing here, what does Solomon's prayer lead Israel to do? It leads to a response of incredible sacrifice and commitment. And that's what prayer has a way of doing in our lives. When we have the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, there is a level of commitment and sacrifice that it should bring us to before the Lord. And that's one of the aspects of the power of prayer. That as we pour our heart out to the Lord, as we make that discipline, as we pray, as hard as it can be sometimes, it brings a level of commitment and it brings a closeness with our God and an adoration and it renews our commitment and it takes us to the place where we are willing to sacrifice. How many times in our life have we prayed, earnestly prayed, and then we saw God work? And it required, because we were in prayer and we were in tune with the Lord and we had the, 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 the work of God in our life, then through that work of God in our hearts as we've prayed, we've seen God do a work in our life that we then make the sacrifice that is necessary for God to bring his blessing, for God to deliver his will, for God to show that next step, for God to help us in that decision, for God to deliver in the case of a loved one who may not be right with God or who is unsaved or who has a special need. That's where I see this prayer of dedication coming to at the end of chapter 8. To a place of renewed commitment, of renewed sacrifice, and great honor from the Lord. I hope that that helps us in our prayer life. What a powerful illustration. I know I just scratched the surface of it, and uh, there's so much more uh, that we could glean from this prayer, but I hope it's been a help and encouragement to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great example of prayer. Lord, may it renew our hearts to be people of prayer. Lord, you want to do a work. And sometimes, Lord, you are held back because of our stubbornness and our unwillingness and our unfaithfulness and our unbelief. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be renewed in our prayer life and our commitment and our sacrifice. Lord, trusting you to do a work. Trusting you, Lord, to bring an honor and bring a blessing that's not of us, but it's of you. And Lord, help us to depend upon you for that. Guide and direct us the remainder of the week. Pray you keep us safe. Guide and direct in each of our lives and our homes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Sorry I went a little bit over. Uh, We look forward to being back together on Sunday.